All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Here's a question for you. How long would you have to leave your hand on a burning stove to realize that this is hot and maybe you should remove it? Because some of my colleagues decided to jump right on the stove and pitch a tent. We'll be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Making the Argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, for those of you who don't sit at home, patiently watching the live stream of the Virginia House of Delegates, I'm going to go ahead and give you the highlights because I'm not recommending that you do that, but you're definitely going to want to know some of the things that took place over the last couple of days. But before we get to that, I need to start in with a story. So I was, uh, I was in the General Assembly building the day before session started, and a colleague of mine who I haven't really spoken to much in the last couple of years came up to me and asked, Delegate Freitas, are you going to be nice this session? Now, of course, I was a little bit, you know, offended that you mean I wasn't nice last session or the session before, but really what this stems from is this was one of the delegates that got furious with me when I gave my gun speech on the floor of the House of Delegates in 2018. And so what I said back was I said, look, I said, I, I honestly believe that we should all be nice and civil to one another. I said, however, if you go back and look at that speech, it actually came after weeks of being compared to Nazis and segregationists and bigots and sexists. And at some point, I just got tired of it. And she looked at me and she said, okay, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I kind of thought like, okay, maybe we're going to go into this session and maybe we're just going to, I don't know, dampen the rhetoric a little bit. All right, that's what I thought for about five seconds. And then all of a sudden we start getting floor speeches on the uh, floor of the House of Delegates. And almost immediately they lead in with comparing us to Nazis, suggesting that we're bigots, suggesting that we're sexist. And why are they suggesting those things? Well, it turns out that Governor Yunkin and Speaker Todd Gilbert are carrying out the agenda that every single Republican ran on in Virginia, right? Things like school choice, Things like protecting life, things like lowering taxes, regulatory reform, um, you know, holding different regulatory bodies accountable within Virginia, right? These are all things that we ran on. We did not hide the ball, right? We didn't say that we were just for puppy dogs and lollipops and then when we got into power, oh my gosh, where did this agenda come from? No, Governor Yunkin is making good on his promises, right? Speaker Todd Gilbert and the leadership in the House is making good on their promises with the bills that we're submitting. And we're being constantly told on the floor now that this, this means that essentially, again, we're, we're bigots, we're racist, we don't care about vulnerable communities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're looking at all of this, and I'm thinking to myself, 
How is it? How is it that someone can go on the floor? And I want to be very clear. It wasn't the, it wasn't the colleague that asked me this question. But how is it someone can sit on that floor and watch floor speech after floor speech after floor speech? And I'm telling you right now, we've been at this a week and there's already been something like five or six floor speeches suggesting in one way or another that we are just evil, horrible human beings that don't care about anybody except big donors. Going so far as, again, to compare us to Nazis, bigots, segregationists, etc. How can you listen to all that and not think to yourself, wow, this, this rhetoric is a little bit... Um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit hyperbolic. You know, this might result in someone on the other side of the aisle coming back and calling you out for it. But that's what's amazing. It's this degree of complete, a complete lack of self-awareness. And that's what we're already seeing coming about on the House floor. And so we're probably going to see it in committees as well. We're probably going to see it in bill presentations. And again, I want to make something very clear. It's not every one of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. I have people over there that I don't agree with on policy. And we have a robust civil discussion about the policies we prefer, the policies we oppose. It's very simple. It's not difficult. But to answer my colleague's question, will I be nice this year? Well, I don't know. Because if you consider what your other colleagues are doing on the floor right now, what they are saying about us as Republicans who are essentially carrying out the policies and submitting the bills that we promised to carry to the same electorate that voted for us, if standing up, carrying those bills and defending it is considered mean, well then, yeah, I guess so. I guess we're going to have a problem this session. Because I'm, I'm not going to sit around anymore and sit there and listen to people on the other side of the aisle trash us, because ultimately they're not just trashing me. I don't particularly care. You can do that all the day long. No, you're trashing everyone that voted for us based off of the agenda that we presented to the people of Virginia. Now, why do I compare that? to sitting on a hot stove and essentially pitching a tent. Reason why is simple. None of this is new, right? Two years ago, before they took power, they essentially ran on this idea that if you just put them in charge, they'd fix everything. Everything would be wonderful and civil and the schools would be great and the hospitals would be great and streets would be safer and people would have more money and, they, and, and there would be more fairness and equity. And so they had two years to push through that agenda. And two years later, the voters of Virginia, who were no longer voting for Democrats based off of what they said they would do, but based off of what they actually did, started to have some problems with those policy positions. You saw this with school choice. You saw this with what was going on in Fairfax and Loudoun. And Democrats came out and their response to this, generally speaking, was, well, there's no CRT in schools. There's no problem in our schools. If you show up to a school board meeting and you're upset, well, then maybe the DOJ needs to investigate you, right? And if you have a problem with our response to your concerns, well, that must be because you're a racist. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic right now, I just want to point out that prominent talking heads on the left, I'm not talking about some random guy on the street, prominent members of the left in the media said that Winston Sears, the first immigrant black woman veteran to be the lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, was the new face of white supremacy. Okay, this was the rhetoric that they were pushing going into the election, and the voters rejected it. They rejected it based off of two things, I think, and we'll see over this session. I think they were tired of the policies that they felt were harming our students in schools. I think they were tired of policies which they believe led to higher crime. I think they were tired as taxpayers or business owners constantly being the butt of their jokes and the bad guy in every narrative that they told, 
when in reality, all they're trying to do is, is run a business, raise their family and create jobs. They got tired of all of that. And the moment they said, look, I, I think this is going a little bit too far. The response was, no, you're just a racist. You're just a bigot. You're just a sexist. And so the voters responded. And the voters responded by rejecting those policies and that narrative. And they voted for a different set of policies and a different narrative. And this is what I love so much about this last election cycle, because there are election cycles where literally the people that won, won not because of anything they did. They literally won because the other side was so bad that they just kind of won by default. But in this election cycle, where we had the highest turnout in Virginia history, Glenn Youngkin, Winsome Sears, Jason Mieris, all of us in the House of Delegates, we ran on very specific platform and policy positions. And now you as the voters have every right to expect that we will implement them. But just like right after the election, because I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, they tried this whole thing where we're just going to accuse everybody that disagrees with us. And I know I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but it is what it is, right? That, that was the, the primary narrative. Like, if you don't agree with us, it must be because you're a racist. They lost the election. And so I thought, well, maybe there'll be some introspection here. Maybe they'll come back and say, this was not the best approach. And, and to their credit, there actually was some people on the left that said, yeah, that was a problem. We shouldn't have done that. But judging off of the floor speeches I've heard for the last six days, a lot of people didn't get the memo. And they are up in arms. And what's amazing is that they are speaking with this moral authority like they didn't just lose a historic election in Virginia. Like they didn't just get wiped out at the governor, lieutenant governor, and, and attorney general. Like they didn't just get wiped out in the House of Delegates. Pretty much every, every entity within government that they could have lost in, they lost. And now they're back on the floor as if they're the ones speaking for the majority. And again, it would be one thing, right? There, there's a little bit of me that could admire the moxie. If it was, let me explain to you why this policy position is so much better than what you're putting forward. But no, no, no. It's the same narrative we've heard before. It's do what we want or you're a racist. Do what we want or you don't care about children. Do what we want or you don't care about teachers. Okay, alternative theory. We care about people. We care about teachers. We care about children. We're not racist, bigots, or sexist. We just disagree with your policy position. We don't think that raising more taxes, more regulations, more government monopolistic control of our education system is going to yield better results. And here's the amazing part about all of this. If, if you really want to talk about not just the rhetoric which is divisive, but the policies that are divisive, let me ask you a question, right? Because the Democrats were running under the idea that if you put them in charge of schools, they will make the schools better. They will run it. They will decide the curriculum updates that need to take place. And that is how a lot of these policies got implemented that parents rejected. And then we came in and we said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give parents more control. Understand something. We didn't come in and say, no, 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 elect Republicans because then we're going to require, we're going to get rid of CRT and then we're going to require the 1776 project. Or we're going to require that conservative organizations come in and design what, what teacher licensure training looks like in Virginia. We didn't do that. We came in and we said, we're going to give parents, the actual consumers, parents and students, we're going to give them more control and more options. Now, here's what's amazing about that. 
Let's say you're more left-wing. Let's say you're more progressive. Let's say you voted for Terry McAuliffe and you don't really like Glenn Youngkin. Why should you be scared of someone saying, I'm going to give you more options? I'm not going to try to control your curriculum. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to control every aspect about what your school looks like. No, no, I'm going to put more power in your hands, which means you will actually have more power to influence the education of your own child, which means if you want your child to you know, study history a certain way or study the arts a certain way, you're actually going to be empowered to make those decisions for your child. The difference is you're not going to be able to force everybody else to do the same thing. Other parents are going to have other options. And that is what is so amazing about the very nature of this argument. And it's something that we need to look at very, very carefully because this is not Merely a question of Democrats controlling your schools or Democrats controlling your businesses or Republicans controlling your schools and businesses. This has fundamentally been an issue. And Governor Youngkin actually talked about this in his inauguration and in his State of the Commonwealth Address. This is fundamentally an issue about our job in government to be able to protect your liberties. And that includes your liberty to make educational decisions, to make occupational decisions, to make other social decisions that I might not personally agree with. Because what this comes down to is, I'm not threatened by your ability to live your life the way you want. All I ask is that you don't infringe on the rights or liberties of other people to do the same. So you can make a whole host of decisions that I would not personally make, that I would not personally agree with. You can make a whole host of educational decisions for your child that I might not agree with. But the real compromise here is we're saying, look, instead of this constant drumbeat of Republicans will decide or Democrats will decide, we're actually offering something different. We're saying, what if we, we put more of these decisions into the hands of the people that are affected by them as opposed to the constant bickering between two political parties? And we're being called racist, bigots, and sexist for it. Just like we were during the election cycle. And my hope is, is that the people of Virginia are going to do the same thing they did in response to that, this election cycle, in two years. Because the bottom line is, is that we're going to try to push a very, very, we're going to try to push an agenda based exactly off of what we said we were going to do. And we're going to be able to get that through the House, but we're going to have problems in the Senate. And I want to give you an update, because I learned this week, and I'm very excited about this, what committees I'm going to be on. So I'm going to be on Education Committee. I'm going to be on Public Safety Committee, Finance Committee. And I'm going to be on the Courts of Justice Committee. So why is this important? Well, on public safety, not only am I on the committee, I'm actually a subcommittee chairman. I got the subcommittee where all of the gun legislation goes. Now, my, my promise as a subcommittee chairman is very simple. I'm going to allow everyone to come to be able to have their voice heard, to be able to explain their bill, to be able to bring witnesses to testify. We're going to allow people to be able to debate the merits of a particular bill. But by the same token, I'm also going to deliver on my promise, which is to say that I believe each human being has an inherent right to be able to defend themselves. And the Second Amendment in Article 1, Section 13 of the Virginia Constitution enshrines that in law. So we're going to have a robust and civil debate in my subcommittee. But we're also going to remember why we believe the things that we believe and what we promised the voters when they elected us. Now, I'm on a second subcommittee. This one's in education. And obviously, the education committee is going to be incredibly important this year for K-12, for higher education. There's a lot of work to be done in here. One of the biggest 
Agenda items, though, across the board is getting genuine, genuine educational opportunities and options to parents. And I'm actually going to be chairing the subcommittee on higher education, which means all of the bills affecting our universities are going to become, or most of those that are affecting our universities are going to be coming to my committee. And again, my commitment, just like on my other committee, is to make sure that everyone who has a bill has an opportunity to argue for it, to advocate for it, to bring witnesses. We'll have people speak for it. We'll have speak, people speak against. And we will have a civil debate. Now, again, my policy or, or my philosophy when it comes to higher education is this. We want to have the best higher education, but that's not just for your universities. That's also trades. That's also credentialing. That's also associates. But ultimately, it's the same concept right? There's, there's different people that we have to advocate for. It's not just about advocating for what a university may or may not want. It's about understanding that I also am supposed to represent the customers of that university. So that's the students. And with public universities especially, it's the taxpayers. Now, if you're a private university and you want to run your university a certain way, you're largely free to do that. But the moment you come and you're expecting taxpayers to subsidize your operations, well, then taxpayers have a right to know how you're spending their money. And I think accountability is in order. But again, we're going to have a civil debate before that subcommittee. The two other committees I sit on, finance, that's where all the tax policy goes. So again, what's my commitment? Our, my commitment was we're not raising taxes, we're cutting them. Because ultimately, the tax is the government confiscating your property. Now, we can debate all day long about which taxes are appropriate or which taxes are not appropriate, what's a legitimate function of government, what's not. But I will tell you this much. I didn't get sent back to Richmond to raise people's taxes, to forcefully confiscate more of what they've earned when they're already struggling to get by. I am also going to be sitting on the Courts of Justice Committee. Courts of Justice has a lot of important work this year. Obviously, there was a lot of things that was done on that committee over the last two years that I think need to be rolled back. I was incredibly proud when Governor Youngkin said he fired the entire parole board because, man, did they have it coming. When you release murderers into a, back into a community without even telling the victims, in some cases, they didn't even tell local law enforcement they were being released back into this, that is a complete dereliction of duty. And it's a violation of the rules which are supposed to govern the parole board. One of the other big important things, one of the other most important decisions we'll make on courts of justice is, is we're the ones that get the first look at the two vacancies on the Virginia Supreme Court. And we've got some great candidates, but I will tell you right now, when it comes to my judicial philosophy, the way that I analyze this is very simple. A judge is there in order to interpret the law, not create it. I have no problem with a judge that makes a decision that achieves a policy outcome that I might not like, provided that they followed the Constitution. And the Supreme Court of Virginia is supposed to view the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Virginia as the laws which govern the decisions that they arrive at. And so I will have a really difficult time with any justice that comes before me that essentially says that they think that their role is to affect a policy outcome that they think is more preferable. If that's your role, take off your black robe and go run for the legislature. Go run for governor. But if you're going to be a judge, then your job is to faithfully interpret the text of the Constitution, the text of a piece of legislation, and arrive at a logical conclusion on whether or not that bill 
falls within the boundaries of the Constitution or violates it. And if it violates it, strike it down. I don't care how many legislators voted for it, but you better do so within a coherent and intellectually consistent judicial philosophy. And I think that's perfectly reasonable to expect because that's the only philosophy which essentially yields results that are based off of proper interpretation and not policy preferences. And if we actually want judges that are not partisan, then that's what we've got to require before they take the bench. So that's what I'm going to be looking at. Again, I'm not looking at their political affiliation. I'm looking at how do they see the role of the judiciary and does it comport with our understanding of it and its proper role as, as directed by the Constitution. So I'm excited about all these committees. I'm excited about this session. Again, I will tell everybody that the difficult part is not going to be getting things through the House. I think we're actually going to get a lot of really good legislation through the House. The difficulty is going to be when it goes over to the Senate because the Democrats still control it. Now, there are some senators over there that have looked at some of the policies that Governor Youngkin has talked about, that the House is pushing forward, and they think there's, there's room to work together, and that's great. I welcome that. But the other thing to keep in mind is that most of these Senate committees are set up in such a way to where despite the fact that the Senate itself might be 2119, the way they've set up their committees is they might put eight Democrats on there and three Republicans. See, in the House, we don't do that. We actually have proportional representation on our committees. right? But they do that on the Senate. So when these bills go through the House, we are really going to need all of you that voted for this agenda to be on board with reaching out to those senators and helping convince them on why this is the legislation that you want that you voted for. But ultimately, just like with everything else, the thing I want to emphasize, the philosophy that I have taken to the General Assembly for the last six years hasn't changed. My job is not to go down there and force Democrats to live the way I think they should. My job is to go down there and regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of your religion, regardless of, of where you came out or where you came from, or what your economic status is. My job is to protect your liberty, your property rights, your right to be able to live your life the way you want, not the way some politician thinks you should. And I will remain committed to that. And you will see that reflected in the bills I carry. You will see that reflected on my votes on the committee on the floor. And you will see that reflected in the way that I chair my subcommittees that I'm now honored to be responsible for. So once again, Thank you for joining us. Please stay tuned to this podcast as we go and give you the updates and talk about what is going on. You want the highlights? We're going to give them to you here. You can also get them on Facebook. You can also get them on Twitter. We're going to be putting out as much information as we can, daily updates on things, so that you can remain aware of what is going on in your General Assembly. I'm Nick Freitas for Making the Argument. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. 
Eagle. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.